Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 37, The Night Cage. Today, we are joined by Christopher Ryan Chan, one of the co-designers and the sole illustrator of Night Cage, which was published by Smirk and Dagger Games. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Danielle. Of course. So for anyone who doesn't already know you, would you mind telling our listeners a little about yourself and how you got into the gaming industry? Yeah, sure. Um, So I got into the gaming industry um, basically by working in a chess store after I graduated from college. Um, And um, it's still there. Uh, It's Chess Forum down on Thompson Street. It's lovely. Um, And uh, I... I got put onto a very weird shift, like kind of at it, my shift started at 6 PM and went until 1 AM, um, which you'd be surprised how many people still buy chess sets around that time. Interesting. Um, and how many people also like would come in and play because we would rent tables and stuff, but you might imagine that it's not as busy as the day. So, you know, when I was bored and, um, had run out of things to reorganize, um, I would, try to redesign chess, which it turns out is a bad idea. You shouldn't try to redesign chess. It works. People like chess. Um, but you know that, I think that's probably how I first started thinking about game design. Yeah. And then that kind of lay fallow for a while because I was going through kind of a career change at the time. Cause I was doing, I was in theater and I was a playwright and now I'm an art director, which is confusing for a lot of people. But no, you still stayed creative. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, that's the important thing. Get paid for creativity in a way that doesn't feel like you have to define your identity every time you do it. Um, and um, the sort of the sort of short story of that is that um, in the process of that transition from becoming a playwright to an art director, Um, I learned a lot of things about graphic design and there's a type of interactive storytelling, um, that comes with that, uh, that is really interesting and is why I became an art director rather than a graphic designer. Um, because it's all about how does, how do we come up with the ideas that inform these sort of interactions and game design is all about those interactions, right. Um, and creating those moments that are ephemeral. It's a, it's a kind of happy place in between, uh, some of the, you know, the older, I like creative impulses that I used to have as a theater person and, you know, who I am now. Um, and you know, I just, when I, uh, when I, when I finally like completed that transition, you know, started doing the art direction thing, I, um, I basically just started doing that in my free time. Cause I was really, you know, always looking for an outlet and kind of tired of trying to redesign chess. <laughs> That's fair. Chess works, but you know what? That's okay. You mm-hmm. found something else. So for anyone who doesn't know how to play the game, the night cage, which is our spotlight, would you mind kind of going through how to play the game? Sure. So the night cage is based on like this really, really um, simple idea. Um, in the night cage, what you can see exists and what you can't see ceases to exist and is gone forever. And in case this wasn't clear, that game is a existential horror game. And um, it's 
bad. You're in a bad situation. You've just woke up in uh, a really dark place. You have nothing, no memories, no face, ex- no nothing except for a candle, and it's burning out really quickly. So you've got this built-in timer um, with the you know this stack of tiles that represents um, both the candle wax that all of you collectively have. And, um, you know, uh, also the, the amount of maze that there is left to explore, because as you, you know, hunt through this maze to find keys, which are going to allow you to unlock a gate that will allow you to get out of the maze, you are making and unmaking it by your observation. But it feels a little bit more like playing Carcassonne than anything else when you're actually doing yeah. it because you're just doing tile laying the whole time um, and positioning yourself in such a way that you can make and unmake the maze safely. Because in case this wasn't um, already apparent, there are monsters, you're not alone in the dark, um, and you really uh, you, you don't want to get on their bad side. So in the game, how far ahead do you get to see? Would you mind explaining like how the tile laying works? Yeah, of course. Um, so you have the candle, um, and because you are always carrying that candle with you, candles have a radius of light. They aren't a shaped light source, so they will light up whatever they can around them. But they're also dim, so you can only illuminate one tile around you at any point in time. And the tiles that you light up are going to be informed by the geography of the tile that you're on. So if you're on a tile that is you know, a four-way crossroad, you're going to light up four tiles around you. Um, if you're on a tile that's, you know, just three passageways, you're only going to light up three. And some of that space will be old space that you have, you know, come from. Some of that space will be new space that you light up as you go into that space. And when you go into that space, um, you draw tiles off of that stack one at a time. um, And you reveal the tile, and then you get to choose where it goes. But your options diminish as the more uh, spaces that you have are filled in. So it's pretty important what you choose to go where because you don't know exactly what's going to come next. Gotcha. And so in the game, I know as you start to move, tiles drop away. Are they f- completely removed from the game oh, as yeah. your light dims? Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's oh, how yeah. the time track works. <laughs> yep. Anything that anything that's darkened is gone forever. So, you know, um, if you find a key in the dark, for instance, it's probably pretty important to make sure that a prisoner who doesn't have a key is able to collect that key because, you know, um, you can't really carry more than one key with you. You've only uh, got one hand and the other one's being used for a candle and you don't exactly have pockets. Poor guys are also dropped in naked. I'm <laughs> just kidding now. I mean, they are. <laughs> they are. They, 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 that's part of, you know, being somewhere with nothing, you know. Oh, jeez. Oh, man. So, all right. Say I have a key. You're still looking for a key. Am I allowed to just like hang out in the same spot and just keep saying like no to my turn? Like what happens if I don't continue moving? So you can choose to not move and not moving is a perfectly valid choice. But, you know, because you are you you have a candle, it's going to continue burning. So if you choose to stay, um, you're going to have to take a tile off the top of the stack and you're going to have to discard it. And there's risk that comes with that. Um, One. It could be another key or a gate, right, that you might need, and that just sucks when that happens. Um, The other thing is that I mentioned there are monsters in the maze, and I haven't really talked about them too much, but um, one of the things that they do is they're actively hunting you. So if you, um, you know, were 
going to discard a tile and it happens to be a monster, you instead model this behavior of the monster hunting you by replacing one of the tiles around you with the monster. So, you know, if you hang out too long, not only are you going to potentially destroy the things that you need to get out of the maze, you're going to attract problems. Okay. So is it better, would you say, to walk around as a team? Well, it, it kind of breathes, right? Um, because the way that the monsters work in this game is um, they're a little bit like Bomberman um, because uh, when you initially find them, the monsters are stunned and they don't do anything until someone moves within their line of sight. Um, and once something moves within their line of sight, they lash out in all four directions around them as far as they can go, which has some important limitations that I'll talk about in a moment. But um, anyone who they strike... Um, is going to um, take a wax penalty. And the thing that particularly sucks about getting hit is that it hurts everyone. That wax penalty comes from the stack of tiles. They're called wax eaters, the monsters, um, for the most part, um, because they eat your wax. And, you know, like any sort of discard off the top of the, the deck, could be keys, could be gates, could be more monsters. And that's good if they happen to eat each other. But that's, you know... Not necessarily a gamble that I like to take when I'm playing that game. How did you and your co-designers decide to go down this dark, kind of spooky pathway to designing this game? So, you know, the story of how this game came to be is honestly like a little bit, a, a little bit boring. Because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Chris and Ross and me, um, we all used to work together um, at an advertising agency. And like all good advertising uh, creatives, um, one of the things that you do from time to time is you take a lunch that's a bit longer than it probably should be. Um, and uh, our favorite place to go for long lunches, you know, was also a place that might have had beer. Um, and, um, you know, we, we do what all, you know, creative people do when, when they're not thinking about work and they just keep thinking about fun stuff and interesting ideas. And... I know at the time I was like talking to Chris and Ross about like a, a very bad connection game that I was noodling with. Um, and the topic thankfully shifted away from that, but we were still talking about the way things connect and like creating roots and things like that. And somebody, I, I can't remember which one of us um, brought up the idea of, well, what if the root was impermanent? What if the space that you were making was, you know, something that would go away after you saw it forever. Um, and this place, um, had coasters, which is why it's relevant that I talk about how it had, you know, beer. Yeah. Um, because it turns out coasters are really great, like rapid prototyping materials for a tile laying game. Um, oh my God. Okay. You know, right. Um, so after we had that thought and we all thought, Hey, that's really cool. Right. Um, we kind of sat on it for a bit and, you know, I made a, I made a quick prototype and we fiddled with it and it's very immediately felt a sense of like, there's kind of a magic to this and it didn't work. And a lot of things about it were bad, but it's also very familiar. Um, if you were to play that first version to now, it just was like all the bad ideas, non-functional things, right. In, in that game. Um, but like still very much the same game. Um, and exploring this sort of root of it being existential horror felt appropriate um, because of the way that, you know, impermanence manifests itself. Um, yeah. I, I, 
I think the thing that um, that made us really attracted to horror as a genre for this um, is that it felt right um, to make a game where everything is disappearing around you, um, something that is not fun or cute. You know, I remember when we were first showing this to people, we had we had uh, one uh, one designer tell us it would be more interesting if it was you know like a game about rabbits burrowing underground or something like that, which it, it's just mind boggling to me. Very different vibe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it makes you, it makes you uncomfortable, right. In a way that feels, that feels right for a story that you're trying to tell, right. With uh, just some cardboard and, you know, a little bit of imagination. So then from the coaster prototype to the finished product, how much changes like happened during the play testing and the development phase? I mean, the core of the game was pretty pretty apparent to us from the beginning, which has you know always been the candlelight mechanic that has been there since we came up with this game. Um, as we developed the game, um, there were sort of parallel conversations happening because, you know, uh, as an art director, um, the way that we tell this story um, with imagery is really important to me. But I also recognize that as a game design, you can't just immediately jump to art, but you can think about how these components inform these things. And you can and should think about where the opportunities for beauty and what sort of style this game is going to be bringing are. So that was, that conversation informed uh, the mechanical conversation and vice versa. Um, Like we knew, for instance, with our main monster, which took the longest to develop. That was the hardest thing about making this game, figuring out how to make the monsters work. Um, I was going to say the largest monster, it actually gets exchanged for like a big piece, right? That kind of plops onto the board. Oh yeah. The dirge. Yeah. That, that, that was kind of a late addition. I'm talking about the wax eaters. They're, they're, they were the hardest thing to design about this game because they're really, really important to, you know, giving you a reason to explore and create the threat of all this, you know, your true enemy is ultimately the darkness, but that's kind of an abstract thought, right? The thing that's scary about the darkness is knowing that there might be something out there, but not entirely knowing what that is, right? So those monsters have to model that and create an interesting spatial puzzle. Um, And we we knew that we wanted them to, you know, encapsulate that sort of that sort of particular type of fear of the dark. Um, but how that comes to life visually, cause you have to have these things be readable too, is very important. Um, and you know, those conversations about like, how does it behave, you know, versus, um, what it is meant to represent were one of the longest conversations in this game and developing it. Um, and you know, I think, I'm trying to think of when that really stabilized because we started working on it in like 2017 and it wasn't really until 2019 that I think the, the wax eaters felt right and were doing what we set out for them to do. That's quite some time. How many different tile types were there? And like, what was the discussion between deciding them? Cause I know you have certain ones that once you've like moved off of, don't they become like holes that you fall through? Oh yeah. Any tile can become a pit. Um, of course, yeah, clearly. Yeah, you know. Um, so we started off with um, with more tiles um, than we ended up with, like, you know, most sort of design explorations. Um, 
things that you wouldn't think would be sort of weird, broken um, shapes, um, we realized just didn't work in the structure of the game. Um, like, so the basic geography, right? Uh, you have cross tiles, you have T tiles, you have straightaways, and then you have the sort of special tiles, right? But if you just look at like, you know, any game that has, you know, tiles that are squares that have, you know, pathways, there's often a bend tile, right? Or, um, there might be tiles that cross over or tiles that have other sorts of weird special effects. But, um, one of the things we realized pretty early on is that straightaways, if left completely alone, were the worst tile in the game to have to deal with. They're still a really, they're still bad. If you get straightaways, like they are, they are the, they are a death trap ultimately to the game, unless you set them up very carefully. Um, but they were actually just terrible tiles to ever go on to. Um, and they kind of led us to the concept of pits because, you know, I was talking earlier about how, wax eaters right um they they have this this sort of motion activated thing where when you discover them they don't initially do anything um but then they attack once something you know goes into their line of sight if you're on a straightaway you have no way of dodging right the way that you get away from wax eaters is pretty simple you sidestep them or you jump into a pit (laughs) um like those are the alternatives you have to wax eaters if there's one within line of sight. And if you have a straightaway on its own, right, that's just your net. If you discover a wax eater, you're boned, right? So there's no reason to ever go down them. And that's actually what led us to the whole concept of like pits and the ecosystem that makes this game sort of work. Cause we realized that you needed some way to take a step back, right? If that happens. And that's, what got us thinking about pits. And we'd been talking about things that had like teleportations and like dead ends and stuff like that. Right. Um, but, um, we, it was, it was the straightaways that made us realize we need something else. Right. Um, and it kind of became a, a really important moment in the design of the game mechanically where, um, we realized, Oh, we can kind of kill two birds with one stone here. Um, having tiles that crumble after you spent a little bit of time on them and create pits that prevent monsters from attacking is good from a monster's like management point of view, but having spaces that aren't necessarily dead ends, um, but do sort of end your moment on a particular path um, was really, really powerful uh, because, you know, in this game, your turn is either moving one space or staying, right? The only way to move more than one space is to jump into a pit because the physics are weird in the night cage. And when you jump into a pit, um, you have a lot more movement flexibility because you have to land on your next turn and, you know, it just opens up your options a lot. Um, which in a way that's also terrifying and, you know, very expensive in terms of its wax consumption. Yeah, I was about to say, so I fall through the pit. What does that look like? I just get to choose any space to land and I just populate a tile randomly from the stack and that's the thing I landed on? Like, could I land on a monster? So close. Everything about that was right, except um, that you don't get to choose anywhere. You choose, so your pit is sort of a locus, right? Wherever you uh, wherever the pit is that you jumped into. And then you choose the row or the column that intersects with that. Um, and you just set your little token off to the side to indicate which one you're going to land in at the beginning of your turn you then choose any of the open spaces and yeah you then populate the tile um from the top of the stack and yeah it can be a monster 
Um, and it's just one of the risks that you take. Oh man. So with the whole like injury being the like wax and it's going down and stuff more and more, mm-hmm. when did you add that? Was that in the very beginning? Um, you know, it wasn't. Um, we had player elimination in this game for a while, and that was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. Um, but it wasn't a bad idea for the reasons that you would think it would be a bad idea, which, I mean, there were reasons. It wasn't the worst reason. Yeah. The worst, the worst thing about player elimination in this game is that if you kill off players, um, the game gets easier because you have... The oh, magic no one's walking off, so you're not losing the key or the gate or whatever. You have less keys that you need to acquire, and like the victory conditions, like get a lot simpler. Um, and you also just don't fill up the board with more monsters that threaten everyone all the time. If you have less than four prisoners, I mean, it's it's why it's why the uh, game, even when you're playing like two players, always has four prisoners at least. Okay. And was it always designed as a co-op? Yeah. yeah. Okay. A lot of people tried to talk us into making it into like a competitive thing or like a thing that had a hidden traitor. And we were just like, no, no, that's not this game. Totally fair. And how did playtesting go? Like, how did you find your playtesters? Chris and Ross and I, that's, I mean, this is one of the, the, the great things about having two co-designers um, who are local. Uh, we playtested a lot together, um, especially at the beginning. Um, and I'm trying to think if it was like, I think it was about four months before we realized that there were these things called playtest groups. Um, and probably about six months before we actually, you know, got our shit together and went to them. Um, so we went to the NYU, uh, game center, um, a decent amount to test there. Um, and we also went to, um, that's how we discovered New York city Playtest with, you know, Gilhova and all those people. Yep. Um, and that was really helpful both, you know, just to get other eyes on the game because, you know, you always need that. But, um, it was also helpful in kind of figuring out who this game was for. Um, like testing with the NYU, uh, the playtest group, we realized that, this game spoke to sort of more nascent gamers and like college students a lot more than it spoke to more seasoned gamers. Yeah. Um, who had more of an interest in say like a Euro style game, right? Cause this game is, it's not that, and it doesn't aspire sure. to be that. Um, and that was, uh, that was kind of the, the two main groups that we used. Um, we also took it around to a few conventions. Um, Unpub was incredibly helpful. Um, you know, uh, we spent a lot of time uh, at PAX Unplugged trying to get people interested in the game. And uh, because it's it was pretty fast and still is pretty fast, um, we were able to get a lot of good playtesting in at those two conventions in particular. Very cool. I'm a fan of both of them. Yeah, they're great. When did you end up finding Smirk and Dagger as the publisher? Was that something that they just walked by when you were playtesting it? Or did you set up a meeting? How did you find them as your publisher? Um, we we met them through the Ion Awards. Um, Kurt was one of the judges um, on uh, the Ion Awards in 2019. Um, and, you know, all the judges in in that award are free to leave their, their information if they want to, and, you know, reach out to you. Um, and, you know, Kurt, um, Kurt said that he'd be interested in talking to us some more. 
And at the time we were shopping it around and had it kind of more in the hands of some other publishers um, who we were doing some development with at that point. Um, but, you know, like a few months later, we kind of realized that, um, that they were, while they were really great developers for the game, um, it was probably not the best fit for like their library or for sort of what we wanted to do with it. Um, sure. and so we, we kind of did a second round of pitching, um, and, um, you know, Kurt was one of the first people that we reached out to, and I'm really glad that we did, uh, because he's been an incredible partner. Um, and, um, I think both, both from a creative standpoint and from a practical standpoint, I really don't know where we'd be without Smirk and Dagger. Um, because, you know, I, I think he, he knew where to push us on and he knew who and how to speak to about this game. And was it always the intention that you would do the artwork? Like, did you do the initial prototype art and he just saw and he was like, oh my God, this is what it needs to be? Pretty much. Yeah. I, I mean, nice. We'd, we'd, been, we'd been developing that art for a while. And by the time that we submitted it around to the Ion Awards, the art for that looks very similar to what it does now. Um, there's, you know, the art now is more polished um, and has just a teeny tiny pop of color. Um, but it was full just absolute full on zero color monochrome when we originally did it. And, you know, uh, Kurt, Kurt was the, was one of the only people who made a case for color that, that lined up with our sort of artistic vision for the game. Sure. Um, when he pointed out that, you know, candles, most of the time they're a little orange. It's like, Oh, well, that, <laughs> that's a pretty solid argument. Yeah. That, that, that is, well, you'd be amazed though. Like some, the arguments that we were getting for color in that when we showed it to other people had a lot more to do i think with making it more like more accessible and more sort of for lack of a better word cartoony um sure and it would it was never like it was never done like the it was never a piece of advice that was delivered in what felt like good faith (laughs) you know or coming from sort of the point of view of you know, this is the, this is the world that we're trying to create, you know, um, because there are a lot of reasons for why the game looks like it does, you know, and why we chose to go with, um, with this sort of very restrained approach to color. But, you know, a lot of people, when they see a black and white game, they're like, Oh, does, is that even done? Is that finished? I'm not sure. That's unfortunate. I mean, this game, because of the theme and just the vibe you're going for, it totally makes sense that it would be black and white or pretty close to it. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when it's dark. You lose the ability to see color, you know? Yep. 100%. And so when you were testing it, I know that you can scale the difficulty level. How did you determine how to do that with like this co-op? Um, so... Scaling the difficulty in this game is a matter of, you know, adding more monsters and or removing keys and gates, right? Um, what we what we kind of came to with this is the, the numbers that most consistently um, create a really interesting ending more than anything else, right? Um, as we were scaling the difficulty, that's, that's more what we looked for than a successful completion rate. Um, or anything like that, because it doesn't matter how often you win if the win doesn't feel interesting and earned. Um, so we, as we as we 
put together like the correct combination of all the pieces and the numbers that work for that. Um, we set it up so that the game basically ends most of the time because, you know, chaos happens, but most of the time um, where you win by the skin of your teeth, if you win. Um, and if you sure. lose, you lose by the skin of your teeth or you lose very early. Was that an issue in the beginning? Like people were losing too quickly or were they just dragging on? Like how, how were you able to deal with that while designing? That was one of the other things that was, that took a long time to figure out about this game. Um, uh, figuring out the right arc for that um, was, was, was not just like a developmental challenge in terms of, can we do this, but like, how should we do this? Um, and we looked at, we looked at endings that felt um, that felt like they were how, how should I put this a little bit more blunt, where it's like it would happen sooner, right? If it was going to happen, um, and we looked at trying to make the game borderline impossible as well, right? Um, but as we as we developed the um, the ending that we wanted for this game. What we what we realized is that there's something really compelling about this moment uh, where the darkness is closing in around everyone. You are at the end of your tiles, or you're past the end of your tiles because you can you can actually get a second act in this game where you run out of tiles. And uh, I guess I should explain this. Let's let's rewind a moment. So, okay. So there's a. There's a really important um, second act that happens in most games of the Night Cage um, called Final Flickers, right? And, you know, you have up to this point had this big stack of tiles in a nice little candle-shaped tile holder that you've been drawing off of, right? And it used to be that as soon as that tile holder was emptied, that was just immediately the end of the game. And if you won by that point, you won. And if you didn't, well, too bad, so sad, right? Okay. Um, but we didn't love the play that that created. It makes the game sort of needlessly hard. And when you win, it emphasizes wins that happen earlier in the game, which are often less interesting and more luck-driven. Sure. Um, so we added this second act called Final Flickers where the idea is that your candle has run out of wax and now it's in its final little like flickers. Um, so you can move through space that you have already created, but you can no longer add any more tiles because you don't have any more to draw. And as you do that, you know, things that would go away into darkness, go away into darkness, just as they do normally. But because your candle is guttering out, you also have to remove another tile from somewhere on the board. And that was, that was sort of the magic thing, right? When you get to final flickers in this game, everything that you've done up to this point to sort of create a maze that you can share and work towards together um, snaps into place. And there's still a good amount of problem solving that happens, but there are definitely better and worse shapes that you can make. Um, with uh, when you get to final flickers, and especially if you know that it's happening, it's really important to start thinking: How do we put this maze together in a way that's going to allow us to get to a victory condition? Um, so, 
that's, I mean, that's ultimately what we did to make the ending sort of do what we wanted to do because then the game can end without necessarily have to, having to rely on, you know, as much the, the stuff that you just draw in, in the moment and you can really plan towards that ending. But that ending is not 100% certain because honestly, it's really hard to calculate all the vagaries of turn order um, and, you know, whether or not this shape is going to be useful and do we have enough like light and do we have enough nerve, which is this, a special currency that you can get over the course of the game to mitigate the tile loss. Um, and it, you know, when we figured that out, that was, that was the moment when we knew that this game was, was really just working right. And was doing the thing that we wanted it to do and give you that sort of arc. Um, that's really important in, you know, any sort of horror movie. Um, it's like, you know, if you, if you, if you think about like alien, right, it's the moment where Sigourney yeah. Weaver has just launched off into the shuttle, right? She's already blown up the Nostromo, like, and oh no, there's still an alien, right? There's still one final thing, right? You think that you've got it and it's probably going to be okay, but there's still that one really important challenge. I always hated that in all horror movies. I'm just like this... They're never dead. And also, why does anyone run upstairs? Does not make sense to me. I don't know, man. Like, I, I, why did they put so many stairs into horror movies in the first place? It's almost like they know that we're probably all going to get old and fall down them someday. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Better, it's like always based in like a neighborhood setting. And like, mm-hmm. I guess all suburban places have like two, three story houses. They also never go into the basement. They always go upstairs instead of downstairs. I well, don't know. The what basement that's would be too obvious. Well, that'd it? be a different type of movie, I guess. Yeah. Very different horror movie. <laughs> oh no, we found mom and dad's stuff. Fair. We're not going to talk about that stuff. <laughs> it's the man cave. Okay. We don't talk about the man cave. It's so funny. So how was it working with two co-designers? Um, it's great. Um, it's also frustrating, um, and it forces you, and it's frustrating because it, it forces you to acknowledge that you don't always have the best idea on your own. Um, but one of the things that I really, really like about working with Chris and Ross is that, um, we don't vote on things. Um, that is just a thing that we categorically don't do, um, Uh because, one of the things that we've learned working in advertising um, for as long as we have is uh, that that just doing things by um, by arbitrary consensus doesn't make better work. If the work isn't working, and if the problems are, you know, seem intractable and divisive, the problem is not solved by voting on a solution that's slightly better. The problem is solved by thinking of a better solution. Um, so as we, you know, approached every problem in this game where we got to those moments where we would disagree on things, um, the solution was never to go, well, the two of us think that this is better than this, you know, I don't know. Um, it was to keep thinking about it and to keep shooting ideas back and forth until we had ideas that were working and more interesting and things that felt like they were better than the original thing in the first place. It's probably also why it took like three years to design the game. But, that was going to be my next question is how yeah. long did it go from inspiration to having it publicly out? Cause it went through Kickstarter and then out to backers, correct? Yeah, it was uh, in 2020 that we did the Kickstarter and backers got it in 2021 because you know, the pandemic. 
Um, yep. I mean, a lot of the core things about the game were pretty, pretty locked early on, right? We knew, we knew the candlelight mechanic was a thing. We knew that we had these monsters that had generally this attack pattern. We didn't always know exactly how they worked or what triggered them. We knew that we had a maze. We knew that it looped around itself. Um, those were all the things that are very recognizable about the game were, were pretty, pretty much what they are by the end of 2018. Um, but the things that make the game really special, um, they took a lot longer to figure out. Um, and you know, those are the things that I think needed the most time. For sure. How do you think the game is doing now that people have it, they're playing it? Have you gotten much response? I try not to look at this too closely. Um, I, I have feelings about board game geek that are very mixed. Um, sure. But, um, okay. So overall, I'm not surprised by by the by either the positive or the negative commentary of uh-huh. the game, right? Because I, I think one of the things that we did pretty well is identify who's going to like this game and why they're going to like it. Sure. Um, and identifying like who, who this game isn't going to speak to the people who, who don't like this game are people who have a very low tolerance for randomness. Um, the game I don't know why they would buy the game. <laughs> I, I really don't know why either, because the way that it models horror is by using a, a top deck draw, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> that's, that that's that's how we model well you're seeing this thing now what's it going to be it's the it's the first thing that you draw off the top of the deck no you don't get to right yeah um but it is it's a game of risk mitigation right um like you know like a horror movie you don't go up the stairs if you don't have to um like how do you how do you lay out your pieces and think about it that way um so People who, I mean, people who like this game are are players who are like generally more co-op friendly, um, who are a little bit on the newer side to the hobby, and um, you know, play for play not for winning so much as they play for experience. Um, there's yeah. there's a decent amount of crossover I've noticed with the role playing crowd um, with this game. Um, people who you know have critiques of the game or you know. Um, people who who want the game to be more predictable, basically, um, and they clearly know, we, do not watch horror movies. Well, don't watch horror movies. Yeah, um, I mean, watch the sequels because they're basically the same thing over and over yeah. again. But you know, um, but it, it's uh, you know one of the things that we've gotten in a few sort of reviews is like, why don't we stack the deck? Why didn't you stack the deck? You know, that's come up a few times, and I mean because that would make the game predictable and because it's it's always something you can house rule it's a co-op do do what you want to make the game suit your taste if that's what you want to do no one's stopping you oh that's definitely true so then what was your favorite and least favorite experience on this design journey i'm gonna say the the favorite experience here was probably just getting into the hobby you know the night cage and working on it has you know, given me the opportunity to get to know so many people and, you know, just open up this world to me in a way that I did not realize it was even there, you know? Um, yeah. 
like when we started working on this, we thought, you know, it's a lot easier to make a side project from cardboard than it is from like, you know, a lot of very expensive movie equipment, right? That's normally what advertising people do. Um, and this, this has been so much more than that for me. It's been, you know, a really eye-opening sort of journey into this world. And I, I'm so glad that, that I did. Um, I think the least favorite part was actually running the Kickstarter itself. I mean, oh, I didn't. Did you guys do a lot of that? Oh, okay. I, I, I didn't run it. Um, I just watched Kurt be much more gracious with, you know, with yeah. Kickstarter backers than I have the capability as a human to be. <laughs> um, oh, I believe it. You know, I my hat is off to everyone who runs a Kickstarter, and I'm so sorry that there is so much weird, weird entitlement on Kickstarter. Yeah, nope. I've done the whole Kickstarter thing. Not a fan. Not doing it again. Made me never want to own a publishing company ever. <laughs> yeah, seriously, same. Ugh. Well, I could totally see that being the least favorite then. So I guess you're kind of, I mean, you're technically a newish or newer designer, but what would you offer as a piece of advice to other designers? Um, I mean, honestly, that depends on what kind of designer I'm talking to, right? There are, so there are newer designers who are coming from backgrounds that are more like mine, right? Which are less familiar with the hobby in general and um, are approaching this as something, I, I think, how do I describe this? Um, as, a, as sort of an extension of their, their larger creative journey. Um, and there are there are designers who are coming at this with like a lot of familiarity from the hobby. Right. And the advice I would give to somebody who is coming at it with a lot of familiarity at the hobby is don't assume, uh, don't assume that you know everything. Don't assume that you know what good is like just because, you know, just because something has worked in one game doesn't mean that it can or should work in another. Right. And for somebody coming at this as, you know, from, from a more outside perspective, I would, I would tell them that they should, they should also do their research and see what, you know, how similar or dissimilar this thing is, because I know that this is very special and it's your baby and it, it was my baby too. And, you know, there are things about it that, that are just going to be like other things and there are learnings that you can have. Um, but in either case, I would say do your research, but do do the research that's appropriate for you, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first got into the industry, I got made fun of pretty quickly by going to some random meetup, trying to play a game, and someone said some mechanic I'd never heard of before. And it was a little gatekeepy. But as soon as that happened, I actually made flashcards to learn the different mechanics for gaming. <laughs> I was that nerd. I know, because I did not want to get stuck showing up to some meetup or some older white guy was already judging me for being a girl but then me not knowing a term i was like this is not happening again so i basically made a bunch of flashcards <laughs> and taught myself all the mechanic names so i wouldn't look dumb again i mean i admire that it took me a while to pick up on all the terminology myself yeah it's so true i mean after that i started looking up different games like the staples for each mechanic to try to mm -hmm do but i didn't like feeling like i didn't know something and so research actually was pretty helpful in the beginning but now i feel like it doesn't really matter if i haven't played a game i'm just like oh yeah i'll get to it well that's i mean that's the secret right like you learn every you learn every mechanic out there and then you realize that 
categorization can become toxic if you overdo it, right? Like, you yep. know, it, and it's just, oh, it's so frustrating. I like, have you ever like tried to teach your mom like how to operate a deck builder, right? Like, no, because I know she would have a very hard time. Every time I design a game, I try to design a game that I could possibly teach my mother because it's harder than teaching, I'd say, a 10 year old kid. <laughs> it is. It's not because these mechanics are so complicated or because we're so... What am I trying to say here? It's hard to relate it to something that they know. Yeah. Because that's how I teach people is typically explaining how it's similar to something else. But if a deck builder is not something that normally someone would have played anything similar to. Right. And I guess I guess my point here is that it's really easy to forget that the things that we think are so easy as people who have been doing this board game hobby, are, they're not easy. They're not easy. That Like every little thing that is new is hard and difficult to learn. Like it's the idea of teaching someone new, a like a concept like a moving card market, right? Is just, I, I'm, I have to remind myself how much that threw me for a loop the first time I did it, right? It, it's so, so easy to forget. You're totally right. I know. Because I'm someone who enjoys playing a new game. Mm-hmm. Like, if I can choose new game versus a game I've already played, I'm always going to choose something new. And my, I have a few friends that really hate me for it because they're like, no, like, I need to play this game. I need to learn the strategy and I need to do that. And it's like, I don't care if I win or lose. I just like exploring new themes and new games. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind learning rules, but I can totally see how that's very mentally taxing for my friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like the biggest, the biggest critique I get when I try to uh, teach games to my significant other is uh, that she spends all day learning rules. Why would she want to do it some more? That's fair. That's, you know? that's I've had that argument thrown at me before. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, like, because you get to make up the rules. These are fun rules, right? Look at, look at it. Yeah. You, you just have to do a thing this way and it's fun. Oh my gosh, yeah, or the person who's like, I like the strict rules, and they playtest something in mid-playtest. You're like, we're going to change this rule. They're like, no, 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 I just learned the rule. Like, you can't change this Mm -hmm. rule on me. And I was like, okay, certain people should not playtest. I mean, that's true. People who don't want to playtest or don't understand what they're getting into, well, people who don't want to potentially deal with that chaos should not playtest. Everyone should be explained as closely as possible what a playtest is before they get into it, though. Oh, boy. That's true. We should almost have waiver forms. (laughs) (laughs) Emergency contact numbers provided. Yeah. In case you have a stroke while designer tries to teach you a thing that they don't understand yet. Oh, gosh. Yep. That's always fun. Well, do you have any uh, potential strokes coming? Any projects that fans should be looking out for in the future? Um, I mean... I don't think I have anything that is stroke inducing. Um, I, I have some projects that, um, that have been doing pretty well, um, in the award circuit, uh, right now. Uh, like speaking of my mom, um, yeah. I, I, um, I designed this game, uh, last year, um, uh, that I, I need to retitle. So I'm not going to bother dropping its name right now. Cause it, it'll have a different title someday. Um, okay. Um, but uh, I've got this game that's like, it's basically like if you were to take a choir and kind of make it have a baby with Go, um, but then make it something that you could teach your mom. Interesting. Because um, it's about gardening. And 
Like, oh, is it the one that I play tested yeah, before? Yeah, play tested okay, that one. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so that one um, is, is probably where a lot of my mental energy is right now. Um, I'm always working on a lot of projects, but what actually lives and dies is very uncertain at this point, you know? Definitely get that. Yep. Um, I've got a, I've got a Kickstarter coming this fall, um, with, uh, with new mill, um, which is pretty exciting. It's Daniel Newman and Tony Miller's company. Um, I think this might be the first time that I've publicly announced that, but I, I, you know, here it is. There it is. (laughs) Woo! Exciting. Okay. Um, Tell me about it. Um, so that game, it is, it's called Portent. Um, it's, it's a little abstract strategy game. And honestly, this one might give you a little bit of a stroke because it's like, it's a little bit, a little bit of a brain burner. I remember playing this. Yeah, did it I give played you a this minor stroke? No, I didn't. Well, I like abstracts. So. Okay, fair. Yeah, um, but continue for everyone who doesn't know what this is. So Portents is a uh, one to two player tile pushing game um, where you're both fortune tellers who definitely know the future for real and definitely aren't just pushing a whole bunch of animal parts around on an altar that you, you is definitely not made up or anything. Completely checks out. Yeah. Um, and um, it's a little bit like if you were to gamify a slide puzzle, um, but you know you have a little bit more freedom than you would in a slide puzzle. And um, the uh, the goal of the game is basically uh, to make lines um, that have a common um, color or shape, and try to collect these little things called omens that are associated with each row and column of the board. And you're trying to make sets of those as well. Um, and they kind of mirror the sets of things that you're pushing around. And um, it's a, it, it's, it's uh, what you do on your turn is very simple, but um, it's, it's a game that uh, is very sharp edged. Um, and um, the, as you play it, you know, looking for the patterns and the possibilities of these things um, is it makes you, it makes you think about um, the space in a very, in a very, um, how shall I put this? In a way that's like a little bit hard for um, somebody who's not really good at pattern recognition to think about, um, because the whole thing is designed to look a little bit like a mess of bird bones. Well, I mean, I enjoyed it, but that's awesome. And it's coming out this year to Kickstarter? Yeah. Very cool. Do you know when or like a season? We've been talking about the fall, um, but I'm going to have to confirm that with Daniel. I mean, that seems very Halloween-esque if it's got all that going on. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing it. And then, I guess, for anyone who's like trying to reach out to you on social media, how can they reach out to you to maybe ask questions or just follow your progress as a designer? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Chan. That's X-O-P-H-E-R-C-H-A-N. Um, I'm sort of on Instagram it, under the same handle, but look for me on Twitter if you want to actually talk to me. Okay, noted. And then for me, if you're looking to find me, Danielle, you can find me on social media at Instagram or Twitter using Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. And I guess for our parting question, if you Uh could design any game, so there's a game out there, it has someone else's name, but magically now you're the designer of it, which Uh game would you choose? Okay. Um, I've been thinking about this the entire time we've been talking, um, and it's really hard it's great multitasking. I think I would. It, it's going to be a okay. It's a tie. It's a tie. I, I wish I had a. I'm I wish I had a singular it. answer for you, but it's a tie. 
it's either Azul or the king is dead. Michael Cheesling and um, Pierre Sylvester, respectively. Okay. Do you want to say why? Or yeah, we're just going to, that's it, mic drop. <laughs> no, I'm not going to mic drop. You take me for somebody who doesn't talk forever. Okay, Azul, I mean, look, I, I love I love abstracts as well. You know, I love how that game feels to play. And I wish that I could have thought of a game that is simultaneously so good for my own sort of puzzle brain on my own and so mean it is such a mean <laughs> game okay I, I love stealing someone else's tiles or forcing them to like throw all that stuff onto the thro- uh, floor while i'm like putting together my perfect little wall maybe i'm probably losing but who cares you know I'm, as like, long as you're being mean yeah so funny um and the king is dead um okay so i the king is dead i love games where you are not anyone on the board but there are a bunch of people on the board it's it's like one of my favorite things, and I think the King is yeah. Dead does it so much more elegantly and simply and cleanly than any other game I've ever played. Like, I it it also manages to take one of my least favorite mechanisms and make it work. Uh, like, I I hate the play until you pass structure, except for the King is okay. Dead because the entire game is play until you pass chicken. You know. Is this if if I do all the eight of my actions in the very first turns in this game, you you know you get eight actions for the entire game. You could burn them all in the first round if you really wanted to, right? Oh my god, would be a bad idea. Don't do it. But like, sure. you know, um, it oh, it's so it's so so interesting. What a possibility space it creates with just like some some stupid little wooden cubes and like. <laughs> And cards that are just move, move, move this color cube. It's it, it's so yeah. Play the king is dead. I was gonna say that one I haven't played. I played Azul in many of its, I guess pre or what do you call it? Like sequels, sequels. I'd, yeah, I'd call them sequels. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, awesome. Thanks again for uh, joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration Publication, Episode Thirty Seven, The Night Cage. And thanks again, Christopher, for joining us. Thanks, Danielle. Glad to be here. And to all of our listeners, we will be moving Game Design Unboxes release to every other Tuesday, starting on Tuesday, May 31st. And as a reminder, feel free to comment and read the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.